Good morning. Would you stand with me? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so we're, we're coming together, and we've read God's Word, we've sang songs to Him, and you're going to hear a sermon. And I guess before I even start the sermon, I kind of want to ask, why do we come and listen to sermons? Why spend time listening to some guy who maybe once in a while is interesting, but not always, explain what I studied and what I learned, and why, why not just read the passage yourself? Well, you can, and hopefully some of you do read the passage since we're going through books of the Bible, but I, I guess my, my question is, if we're going to listen to a sermon from the text, what's the point? Why do this? And some of you are like, yeah, that's a good point, and you're going to walk out. But no, like, really, the fact is that we corporately together get to hear the truth of God's Word, and hopefully, and here's my big ask of us, is that we would put it into practice. We do something with it, because the benefits from putting into practice God's Word, if we're doing it because we love Him, honestly helps us grow, helps us become more Christ-like. It changes us. It allows us to look more like Jesus over time. And so when we come to God's Word and we hear a sermon, I hope we're not just doing this to check the box for the beginning of our week. I hope that we'd come prepared to want to do something with what we're learning. Now with that, let me tell you a story. A minister, George Crane, tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred towards her husband. I do not only want to get rid of him, she said, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. Dr. Crane suggested a plan. Go home and act as if you really love your husband. <laughs> Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be kind and considerate and as generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. Now that will really hurt him. With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and ex exclaimed, Beautiful, beautiful! Will he ever be surprised? And she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if she loved him. For two months, she showed love and kindness and listening and giving and reinforcing and sharing. And when she didn't return to Pastor Crane, Crane called her and said, are you ready now to go through with the divorce? Divorce, she exclaimed. Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise, but also through repeated deeds. Today, we're continuing our Done series through the letter known as 1 John. Today, the subject matter is love. In fact, the Bible is going to say what most of society usually quotes regarding God is this, that God is love. And while I agree with this, I would bet that most people who have said that God is love probably don't know where in the Bible it actually says this, or who wrote it, or what the context was in which this was being written. And because of this, our idea that God is love becomes subjective. And both God and love can be whatever we want them to be. 
Today, I want to explore this idea that God, who is love, from God's actual word explaining this, allowing him to define what this means, rather than just a catchy phrase that becomes the spiritual junk drawer for just being nice. So let's begin in verse 7, in which Karen read, 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, John begins with this phrase, and we've talked about this before. He's writing to the Ephesians. He says, dear friends, or as it translates in other translations, dear beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And John, throughout this letter, or epistle as it is known, has been contrasting many things, darkness and light, good and bad. But here, and throughout this letter, he has also been teaching things in parallel, and in this case, it's both faith and love. And we will see that love is not alone, nor does it justify us, yet it is a byproduct of the faith in the person and work of Jesus that one has. John says, let us love one another, or I read it as, loving one another is possible in Christ. So let us love one another because love comes from God, and knowing God means we are able to love one another. Now, we have said this before, but the one another's points to other believers. And while I know this to be true, and I know that love for other believers is central in this epistle, I just want to point out that love for another person means that loving yourself is not the goal. Loving others, loving the another's, or anyone but yourself requires you to put away selfishness, to not just think less of yourself. It means to not really think of yourself at all because you are more focused on others. Now, no one can prove necessarily that they're a son or daughter of God. And often we'll point to things that we think make us a Christian. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I was baptized. Okay. Are you a Christian? Yes, I go to church. And things of this nature. But God specifically is going to point out what it means, what the marker is of being a Christian. And what John is getting at is not that we must love one another, not that the Ephesians have to do this, but that this love for others is produced because faith is present. But the byproduct of this faith in the true God, in Jesus Christ, is what John says, rather than reading, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, which possibly in a religious worldview becomes how we act justifies us, which is not true. I think we at Church of the Valley will say until we're blue in the face here that it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. But let me point this out again. If we start to think that we are justified because we love unlovable people, or maybe we, for a moment, are not selfish and care for someone else that that justifies us. You are missing the point of God's beautiful grace and gift in Jesus. But most of us don't think we're all that loving, right? Like, none of us are in here going, I'm the most loving person in this room. No one thinks that, I hope. Like, I am far too dismissive of Seahawks fans. I'm just kidding. But (laughs) I wrote of bad or inconsiderate drivers, or Seahawks fans. 
And what John wants to point out is what we, the believer, now have access to in Christ. We have access to love. We have access to love that comes from God. Not a worldly love, but love that comes from God because we know God and we have experienced his love for us. And how do we know that we've experienced the love of God? How can any of us be sure that we've experienced the love of God? Well, John doesn't necessarily say that first. What he points out is for those who definitely have not experienced the love of God. Here's what he says in verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Hmm. So again, what we do does not justify us. So we can't read John saying, you better love better or you're out. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that those who don't know God and his love don't love because they don't know love because God is love and they don't know him. Now, let's be real. Love, in general, is a pretty subjective thing, especially in the American language where we're like, man, I love the Niners and I love my children. And for some reason, the same word gets used for both. But love in a human sense looks different for each person. There are conditions. There are self-fulfilling reasons for acting as if we love someone. And so any and every analogy that we could come up with to talk about God's love breaks down pretty quickly. Love for your spouse, love for your parents, love for your children, love for your siblings, all probably some of the most intense human love that one can have because of our relationship, especially blood relationship or an intimate relationship. But this week, I looked at this passage, and when we had staff meeting on Tuesday, we started to talk about it, and I, 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 looked, I used essentially the Hathaway song, which is, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What do you do when I say that? What are you supposed to do with your heads? No? No? Okay. The people that I expected to know that did not know that. That's fine. What is love? Baby, don't hurt. Okay, it's fine. I'll move on. And we as leaders in the church, as the staff, as we talked about what is love, We use words like sacrifice, grace, care, but we honestly could not come up with a succinct, easy definition other than, really, God is love. But that love is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an affection. Paul writes about love, and he says a few things about love, which all of us have heard at most weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Paul writes, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And you might look at that and think, well, maybe I personally don't love like I should. But none of us do. But this is the love that God lavishes upon us in Jesus Christ. And because of that love, we too, to a finite amount, through the lens of, unfortunately, our humanness, can love other brothers and sisters in the faith. Not perfectly, but as a response to the grace and love that we have received through what Jesus has done for us. Now, let me say this. Love is a choice. 
I might not always feel like loving someone. Let's be real. And I don't know if you feel the same way. Maybe last night someone got on your nerves if you were here at the party. I don't know. Party was amazing. That meat, I still have the meat sweats. That was so good. But maybe just being around other people sometimes irks us. But I can choose to love people anyway. And John points out that our love for another brother or sister in the faith is not only a byproduct of our faith in God, but something else that really sets the believer apart from the world. So I need some audience participation. All right, here's what I need. And I'm going to ask this question. It's going to be kind of vague, but I want you to think about it. And then I want you to get my attention if you have this. All right. Who here has something that signifies their faith on their person right now? Who has something that signifies your faith on your person, on you right now? What do you have, Larry? You have a hat. What's it say? Okay. Yeah. Jesus is... Amen. So, so Larry Frederick is wearing a hat that talks about Jesus. And in some cases, it might be you're walking around, someone sees the hat and goes, oh, Jesus, tell me about him. I want to get saved. Probably not. But we're still, you still have something on your person that is, is showing, hey, I have faith specifically in Jesus. Does anyone else have something similar? Malik, what you got? You got a necklace. It's a chain. What's on it? A cross. Crosses are kind of a big deal. Yes, absolutely. All right. Now, the hat or the necklace. Anyone have a tattoo that signifies Jesus? Anyone? Come on. Come on. Be real. No one wants to admit it. All right, that's fine. You could see those things as badges of faith. And they are affirming of Jesus. And I know both these men, and I know they love Jesus, and they want to talk about Jesus. But that's not what the Bible says is your badge of faith in Christ. The Bible says this in John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the necklace and the hat you wear. Wait, nope. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the one thing you don't want to do <laughs> is love one another. And so the world might assume that our, our necklace or our hat points out that we are about Jesus, but that isn't biblically what Jesus says is our badge of faith. It is our love for one another. That is our mark that we leave on this earth for Jesus. That is our mark of Christ following in the book of Acts, Luke is eager to show that one of the first effects of salvation and community life in Christ is very practical. It's costly. It's a costly care for one another. In Acts 2, 45, it says this, after, the, the, after Pentecost, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, and thousands upon thousands become followers of Jesus, and the early church starts, and they start to meet in the temple courts, and they start to meet in one another's homes. It says in 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Well, that's not necessarily what is being asked of you today, but look at how John Piper points this out. He says, in other words, meeting needs in the church was more important than personal possession. 
And this is very godlike. Recall, he is so full and content that he is by nature love, God. Giving, caring, helping, supporting, protecting. Love among Christians is the mark of Christ in the church. And then Piper quotes Jesus, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. And so this is a selfless love. This is a grace-driven love. This is faith-practiced. This is love that exudes from the person indwelled by the Spirit of God who has received the love of God. And so how do we know what love is like or how God manifested this love to his creation? Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, the first two verses we studied, kind of poetic. And here we have this very clear example of God's sacrifice on behalf of his creation. God's love was manifested through his sending of his son to die in the place of sinful mankind. Who that? That's us. Not just that a sacrifice would be offered, but so we then, as believers unto the Lord Jesus Christ, could set our lives on him. We could live in him, the text says. We could live through him. We could base our identity on Jesus. God, who is love, demonstrates this love through his sacrificial grace. And so we live through him. We experience Christ's likeness as we put into practice the things he tells us to do, not necessarily through imitation, but through grace-driven obedience. And as we obey, as we love God, and as we love others, as we obey God at his word, we tend to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know if this has dawned on you until just this moment, but love... It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is, what's that first word? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when I look at that, if I'm really being honest with you, and I try to be honest every single week, I haven't lied up here that I know of yet, Uh, let's see, how many kids are in this room? I kind of suck at these. But I'm grateful that God's at work in me in all of these. And that love, that thing that I really struggle to give when someone gets on my nerves or irks me within the church is something that God is doing in me. This is a work of the Spirit. And this gives me such hope because as I know that I have not arrived in the ones that are after love. It also points out to me that God's at work in me to love one another. Now, let's continue with John's explanation of God's sacrificial love. Verse 10, he says, this is love. Not that we loved God, okay? Not about you. You ain't first. If you're not first, you're last. Sorry, that's what came to mind but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
John makes known that God's love is not predicated upon our love for him first. This is a big deal because conditionally in human love, the reciprocation of love always seems to be necessary. And yet God in his love does not expect us to initiate. Rather, he is the initiator while also knowing us completely and perfectly and knowing every thought in our head, and yet he loves us anyway. And so what does he do by sending his son? He creates the opportunity for people without a chance or an ability to save themselves. He provides a lifeline. He provides a rescue. He provides salvation. How? By paying for our sins. Past, present, future, ones we don't realize we've done, ones that we did on purpose, he pays for these sins. And if you've ever been surprised by someone getting the check for your meal, while nowhere near the sacrifice or the same thing, yet it's in the same vein. And what I don't mean is you go out to lunch with somebody and the other person picks up the check. What I mean is you go out to lunch with someone and someone not at your table decides to cover the meal that you ate without them being involved in your meal at all. God who is holy and perfect cannot be in the presence of sin because it separates. Sin is separate from God and his holiness. So what does God do knowing full well that we are unable to pay for our sins ourselves? He foots the bill. He pays the price. He covers what we have afforded. How? He takes off his royal robe. He takes on flesh. He lives perfectly. He dies sacrificially, and he victoriously rises from the dead. That is the only means of this word atonement or payment that you or I can have that makes a difference in eternity. I love how Oswald Chambers puts it. He says, We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we're sorry for our sins. Let me say this again. Repentance doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of his forgetting, forgetting our debt, is death of Jesus. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of the atonement, which he has worked out for us. He does, it does not matter who or what we are. There is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way. Not because Jesus pleads, not because Jesus asked the Father. No, it's because he died. So the love of God for the believer is the spiritual equivalent of playing with house money. You are not judged based on your goodness or righteousness, okay? So I hope that actually encourages you. You are not based on what you do. You are not judged based on your goodness or righteousness, but instead you are judged based on Jesus's goodness and righteousness. And if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not said, yes, I want to follow this Jesus, Why the heck not? You will not be judged based on what you do. You'll be judged based on what Christ has done, and he is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
And then we, because we are judged based on his righteousness, we are then given the freedom and the ability to live our life through Jesus. Through his example, sure. But through his spirit, through his forgiveness, through his grace, we live not as our own person anymore, but as an adopted son or daughter of the God Most High. And I think when we remember or understand that the atonement that was paid so that we could have life in Jesus, we become more grateful. We become more loving. We become less selfish. We become more, I'm going to make up a word, Christful. That's what we become. Not because of us, but because of him. And the point is, and I know this might not be very popular. Meh. I'll say it anyway. It's really difficult to love others when we're too busy loving ourselves. I'm not saying don't have confidence in yourself. I'm not saying don't care about yourself. What I'm saying is derive your confidence from an identity placed in Jesus because of whose he says you are and realize that your debt, past, present, future, has been paid through the satisfaction of Christ's life being traded for yours. So now... Now, because you understand the atonement, now because you understand that your debts have been paid, you can love one another because he first loved you. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means he didn't expect us to clean ourselves up. And it is through this demonstration of Christ dying in our place without us doing anything to earn it that we too can love one another even when someone does not earn it from us because they too are created in God's image. And God provided them grace that they, like you and me, do not deserve. And so that again is where John goes. He goes to what we can do in response to understanding that our sins have been paid for. The supernatural response to receiving grace led by the Spirit of God inside of us. Here's what he tells us we are able and ought to do. Verse 11, dear friends, beloved, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And here comes where so many of us could just feel guilty. Or we could feel as if now we have to love others because Christ loves us. Yes and no. See, guilt, I don't think, comes from the Spirit. And the gospel isn't about what we do, but what we believe should and does dictate how we behave. So why do you think John says we ought to if what we do doesn't justify us? Okay, let me tell another story. This past week, we're in staff meeting, we're discussing love, we're attempting to define it, and we're not doing it. It's complicated. But we do know that love apart from Christ is not the love that the Bible is talking about. And one of our staff members, who will remain nameless, but has been on staff almost 70 years, tells a story of a person who was a believer, but absolutely bothered her to no end, to the point of feeling as if perhaps maybe she started to hate this individual. 
But after the Spirit of God convicted her through his word, through a sermon, she then began to feel as if she needed to make a change on how she treated this person. So she made a commitment to God, not to the person, made the commitment to God to begin to act and treat this person as if she loved them. She would speak highly of them to others. She would be affirming to them when they were together. She would pray for this person when that person was not around her. And over time, this willingness to lay down bitterness and malice towards this person, my friend, on staff, began to actually feel affection for this person. She started to not have to really try to love them. God had met her in her obedience. Let me say that again. God had met her in her obedience and changed her heart towards this person. I have to admit, the first time, and, and I've heard the story more than once, the first time I heard the story, I kind of felt a little like it was fake it till you make it, right? Like you hear that and you're like, all right, I'll just try, whatever. And yet I think instead, this was a wonderful example of someone who didn't want to do something trusting the conviction of the Spirit through the Word and not being complacent or stagnant. See, a lot of us have conviction when we hear the Word, but let's be real, we become complacent and stagnant and we don't realize it, but our heart starts to get harder towards God's truth. But instead, she did what she thought she should do to obey God's command of loving one another. Loving other believers is not what justifies us, and it's not even something we have to do. It's something we do when we take seriously the commands of God, and we allow the Word of God to convict us. This person, who I haven't mentioned by name, is someone I have seen grow in grace and love and kindness and all of the fruit of the Spirit in ways I don't think most people would expect but it all begins with knowing how your sins were atoned for. It all begins with knowing that Christ had to give his life so that you could have life. And how you were forgiven and how that love for you then manifests itself in your life through loving others. Mere Christianity, one of the most popular Christian books of all time, you know, outside of the Bible, C.S. Lewis says it this way, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you presently will come to love them. Now, this can be completely misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied, but I I guess what I'm taking from this personally, I'm going to give you my conviction as I wrote this sermon, is how do I know if this works if I've never tried it? And I'm reminded of the words of James, not Franco, but the apostle. You're not becoming an apostle today, James, just an elder. I'm reminded of the words of James in his epistle named after himself in the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. To claim we love, church, to claim we love God, and yet not love one another, is, is not true. <laughs> 
To claim we love, but to never actually do anything about it, that isn't faith. That's just cheap words. And the entire letter of James seems to point to be the Holy Spirit pointing to our faith being active and tangible and exercised rather than just cheap words and hiding behind belief in things we don't actually know or understand. So as I said the other week, and I want to keep putting in front of us as a congregation the benefits of practicing God's word are we begin to understand the word better. We get to experience what love for God actually is. We get to obey his commands and we begin to become more Christ-like. Not instantaneously, not easily, but progressively as we apply the word of God to the life that we live through Jesus. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. At the beginning of John's letter, uh, the gospel letter, known as John, we studied it a few years back, it's regarding the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. John writes a similar thing in John 1.18. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Making known that Jesus is the fulfillment of God in his glory. Or, as we studied a few weeks ago, and as Paul writes in Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Context, Jesus. All of God's fullness dwell in Jesus. And so when John writes here in 1 John that no one has ever seen God, but the love, which is a marker of the Christian, people then see the effects of God. And that love, God who is love, lives in us and his love is made complete. It is fulfilled. It is being perfected in us. The love of God, the effect of God is that his people then, as a byproduct of his own love to his people, then go love one another. So, so what do we do with this? Because you could just read the passage and be like, God is love, uh, I should love, yay. But what do we do as we've unpacked this passage for 25 minutes? When I read a passage to unpack as a sermon, I often ask myself, at the end of the passage, and you're going to hear me say this more and more, so what? What do I do with this? What do I do differently because of the time that I have spent in this passage written thousands of years ago, and in this case, to some people in Ephesus? Written by the Spirit of God to the body of Christ. So what? Now, if I reread the passage for you right now, as we reread the passage on our own time, and you've just spent some time hearing the context in which this was written, who is being written to, some specific application maybe in today's life, I think that I realize that my love for others, this is my own conviction, is a marker. Not to show off my Christianity. I don't think Larry's hat or Malik's necklace is to show off their Christianity. They just love the Lord, and these are one of the ways they express it. But caring for those 
Loving the one another's, caring for those who might not care for me back. They might even check this out. I don't know if you know this about Christians. They disappoint you. (laughs) And to care for those who might not care for me back because God in his goodness and foresight said that we ought to love one another because I identify with Jesus. And I love because he loves me and he loves them. And when I don't naturally feel affection for a brother or sister in the faith, to serve them, to care for them, even if I don't want to, even if I don't think they deserve it, because often God will change my emotions in the motion of love. So church, that that was me. What are you going to do? This is a season that people tend to be a little less resistant to Jesus. Not saying everyone is, but the cultural attending of churches around this time and being willing to hear the Christmas story is a real opportunity for you and I to love people, to invite people, to serve people, and hopefully they would hear the message of the gospel and turn from their sin and turn to the Son. But it begins with us, church. Loving the one another's. Loving the people in the pews near you. Because we love God. And we then get to love others by being a testimony of his grace in our lives. So church, look up here. What are you going to do? Worship team, come on up. And while you wrestle with what you're going to do, I'm going to pray for us. And then Laura and Eugene are going to lead us in two songs. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is true. And I thank you that a passage I didn't want to preach was a passage I needed to preach. And I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you, God, that it is not by our external trinkets that we are identified as followers of Jesus, but it is by the love of that we get to give to one another because you first loved us and you gave us your spirit to then care. God, would we be a loving community? Would we be loving sons and daughters to other brothers and sisters in the faith? And through that, God, would there be a want and a need to see people far from you who don't know you? Would there be a need in our souls and our hearts to want to talk about you? Would we care for those who have no hope? Would we care for those that are far from you? But God, it begins in us. So do a work in us that only the Spirit of God can take credit for. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.